I have been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. This life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Those words of the Apostle Paul defined his life, and they define the life of anyone who's trusted Jesus in saving faith. There's something worse than dying, and that's living even one day without the king. What a great line. That's what our lives are all about, Jesus, and living for him, finding our lives in him. There's something I want you to know profoundly tonight, and it's this. God loves you. God loves you as much as he can love you. He's an infinite, perfect, all-wise, all-good God, and he loves you with a profound love that you will never fully understand even into eternity. We are created for relationship. We're created to be known and to know our creator more than anything else. And that's what we need to come to grips with more than anything else. We've talked about what it means to live resilient lives in the midst of an increasingly hostile culture, drawing from the examples of these faithful Jews in Babylon. But living our lives out has got to be grounded in who we are in Christ, finding ourselves in his love, enveloped in his love, that is what we need more than anything else. And so let's look at a few passages tonight to frame our understanding of this love that God has for us. Daniel uh, is moving quickly now as the story progresses. And we see that Belteshazzar becomes the next king. Just that quickly, this great, powerful king of Nebuchadnezzar moves off the scene and his son takes over as his king. It's a really jarring, sudden change in the story as we read through it, but that's what happens. After Nebuchadnezzar, Belteshazzar comes into power and he doesn't humble himself before God either. And so if you look at chapter 5, beginning at verse 18... Listen to what Daniel's saying to the new king. O king, Daniel 5, 18. O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him whom he would he killed, whom he would he kept alive, whom he would he raised up, and whom he would he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened, so he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne, and his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind, and his mind was made like that of a beast. And his dwelling was with wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox. His body was wet with dew of heaven until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not Humbled your heart. Though you knew all this, 
But you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven, and the vessels of his house have been brought in before you, and you and your lords, your wives and your concubines, have drunk wine from them, and you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know. But the God in whose hand is your breath, and who are all your ways, you have not honored. Daniel brings a word of prophetic judgment to Belshazzar, the son of Nebuchadnezzar. And I want you to hear what's going on here. He says to him, you saw what happened to your father when his heart grew proud and the way God humbled him and made him a beast of the field. And you haven't learned from it. And now your heart is following the same idolatrous direction that your father's heart followed, and your heart is lifted up. Your pride is consuming you. Now there's something incredibly important I want you to hear here. He says, not this. Well, your father was Nebuchadnezzar. Your father had this massive pride problem, so of course you're going to as well. Because that's how it goes. And you know what? That is often how it goes. There tends to be a generational effect of sin. I can highlight five particular sins in the generations of my family. All the way, I knew my great-grandparents, and especially the men in my family on my dad's side have about five sins that I see perpetuating themselves from generation to generation, passed down by example, maybe even by wirings to some degree. You know, it, we, we can have some sinful tendencies and addictive predilections that we follow and find ourselves very naturally falling into, but the fact that something comes naturally or we feel like it's been handed off to us never means we're stuck. That's the lesson here. Please listen to this lesson. You're not stuck. You're not stuck by trauma you've experienced. You're not stuck because of bad examples you've had in your life. You're not stuck in lack of examples, good examples you've had in your life. You're not trapped by DNA or genetics that you may have inherited in some way. Oh, it's really important to be aware of those realities in your life and the ways they could easily affect you or else you may be blindsided by sin in your life if you're not aware of what's been handed off to you. But you're not stuck. I want you to know this. There are certain ways of thinking that are commonly taught to us that come from bad versions of psychology that basically say you're determined. Your experience, that determines you. That's who you are. Your, your abuse you've experienced in your life, neglect you've experienced in your life, really hard things you've gone through, bad examples, lack of examples. The family's disintegrating in our culture in so many ways. It's not uncommon for young men and women to have families that have handed them a whole load of difficulty. And we can feel trapped in that, and we can feel stuck in that. And we are learning here, you never are. The Bible never says things like this. Well, your father was Nebuchadnezzar. What do you expect? Of course you're going to be proud. What's it saying? Just the opposite. You saw what his pride did to him. It made him a beast in the field. You should know better. And look, if you've got a messed up family, if you've got real challenging things in your life, don't despair. Don't lose hope. Actually believe that the God who's sovereign and good and working in your life 
is capable of using those things to make you far deeper than you would have been. To make you far more equipped to be a minister to other people who are going through hard times than you otherwise would have been. To have your understanding of your need, your humility for God increased. You're not stuck. You know, we have four kids we adopted, all older, eight, seven, six, and eight. And they had gone through really hard things. And, you know, I read psychology books. I read books about parenting. And, you know, some of them say stuff like this. Parenting's basically done by 18 months. <laughs> yeah, they're all, all the things that kids really absorb, it's done before they're two. And then we start being our kids' parents at eight, seven, six, and eight. Well, I guess they're hopeless. I guess the really hard things they experience in their lives are just going to happen again. That's the kind of thing you get. I mean, you, you even read stuff. Do you know how important nursing is? Being None of my kids were nursed. You know, God wires the human experience as a baby every few hours to express your need. And mom is there to say, I'm here for you. Physically and, and, and relationally. And you're present and you're providing. And that's so important. And none of my kids had that. So are they hopeless? Well, my wife and I, when we adopted our kids, we read all this stuff, especially she read all this stuff, and we realized that a lot of people would say, there's no hope for our kids. Statistically, they're just going to fall in the same patterns they saw for the first years of their lives. So you know what my wife and I decided to do in light of the power of the gospel and the power of the Spirit with all those statistics that said our kids were hopeless? We decided to say, to hell with statistics. And, and I don't... <laughs> I don't say that glibly. When I say to hell, that's not something glib. I think lies that tell you you're stuck come from hell. I think they come from the pit of hell. I think Satan wants us to believe we're stuck right where we are and there's no getting out of it. I think that's what he wants every one of you to believe, that you're stuck right with your addiction you may have, the trauma you've experienced, the difficulty in your life, the sin you've committed in the past. You're, just, you're in this rut, and you'll never get out of it. You are stuck. Give up. It's hopeless. Just wave the white flag and surrender to sin and a godless life. That's what Satan wants you to believe, and those are lies from the pit of hell. So let's send them right back where they came from. And so we've got to back up and realize and heed this warning, you saw what happened. You know, if you didn't have a dad at home like I didn't growing up, you know how important a good dad is. So when you get to be a dad, be that dad you didn't have. If you didn't experience uh, the kind of experience you, you would have seen as your ideal, you know what you don't want, right? If your parents' marriage is a mess, you know exactly the kind of marriage you don't want to have and commit to that. Adultery is one of the sins that shows up in my family, especially among the men. So am I stuck with that? No. I am more intensely committed to faithfulness in my marriage because of that than I ever would have been otherwise. The first book I ever wrote was on the jealousy of God. For his unfaithful wife. Because God loves us even when we're unfaithful to him. And so we're never stuck. That's the first lesson tonight. And then we live lives of faithfulness in light of what God has called us to in light of who he is. Look at chapter 6, verse 3. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king planned to set over him the whole kingdom. 
Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom, but they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful. And no error or fault was found in him. And then these men said, We shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. This dude had integrity. He could be trusted, and he was a valued member of the society. Even though he served a different God, even though he had integrity, he was so valuable to the society that he lived in because of his integrity and his diligence and his honesty that the king and these people who wanted to accuse him found no grounds for accusing him. We're called to live beyond reproach, and that's how he was living. And so they say the only way we're going to take him down is if it's in relation to his God, which we know he doesn't compromise with. And so they convinced the king to make a law that anyone who seeks counsel or wisdom or seeks anything besides what the king provides is going to be executed. They get the king to do that. They tap into his pride, so he makes a law that's going to end up getting Daniel executed, which he doesn't want to do, but his pride gets him in trouble. So look at verse 10. He signs the document, a death sentence for anybody who worships anybody, goes and seeks counsel from anybody but King Belshazzar. Verse 10, when Daniel knew that the document had been signed, what did he do? Did he freak out? Did he lose his mind? No, listen. He went to his house where he had the windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. Remember the heavenly city? The place of worship, the place of sacrifice, the place of meeting with God, the place where the Messiah would come. He opens his windows toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God, love this, as he had done previously. He doesn't start doing this to make a scene. That's just how he rolls. He's a prayerful man, and he continues how he Always had been. And so they realized they got him. And they get the king in this really tough situation because he had signed this decree that anybody who seeks wisdom from anyone but the king is going to be executed. And so that's exactly what happened. So in verse 16, he has no choice. Verse 16 says, Then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you. It's still your God. Belshazzar recognizes the power of this God, but it's not his God. Whom you serve continually, deliver you. The stone was brought and laid in the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords, and nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. He didn't want this to happen, but his pride got him stuck. No diversions were brought to him. Sleep fled from him. Then at break of day, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. As he came near the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you serve continually been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel. And shut the lion's mouth, and they've not harmed me, because I was found blameless before him. And also before you, O king, I have done no harm. Then the king was exceedingly glad, and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no kind of harm was found on him. Why? Because he had trusted 
in his God. That's it, people. Our lives are defined by our trust in God, his promises, his provision, his good news of Jesus Christ come to take our place. But we trust all those things because we trust the very character of God. Trust in him is the bottom line of our entire lives. And here's the good news that I want to explain as clearly as I possibly can. Here's here's the central good news of the Christian faith. Everything else is connected to this. The Apostle Paul said, I passed on to you what was of first importance, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, and he rose from the dead in accordance with the Scriptures. Paul says to the Corinthians, I sought to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. Which technically isn't true because he sought to know all kinds of things about marriage and how the church runs and how to live our lives and sexuality and all these things. But what he's saying is, is relatively speaking, everything is meaningless unless you get this message of Jesus in our place. What do I mean by that? Well, the Bible starts with this truth that you are created by God in his image. And we find out right in the beginning of the Bible that the song for the Lego movie is actually true. Everything is awesome. And you are more awesome than anything he's made. Nothing else in all of creation is called the image and likeness of God. As awesome as the trees and the pond and the clouds and the thunder and the lightning and the rain we saw today and the sunshine and the mountains, as awesome as those things are, God says far surpassing those things are us, human beings made in his image. And we're made in his image and likeness, and we're awesome. There's something incredible about a human being. A human being is the most awesome thing you'll see in creation. And we're created for God, by God and for God, for relationship with him, to glorify him with our lives and live for the good of others. That's why we exist fundamentally more than anything else. But the problem is, None of us lives that way in the way we boot up. None of us. The Bible says that we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has gone his own way like we talked about last night or this morning. We talked about this morning that that we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, which means none of us glorifies God in the way we start off as human beings. And so a righteous, holy God judges that rebellion. He judges that failure to live up to his glory, the very purpose for which we were created. But thank God he doesn't leave us there. In his divine mercy and grace and love, the Bible says that God sent his only son, the eternal son of God, is sent into the world to live a perfect life in place of our disobedience and die a perfect death to pay the penalty for our sin and rise victoriously from the dead to validate who he was and what he did so that we can be free in his life, death, and resurrection. And now he lives forever to rule and reign and intercede for us. Jesus in our place is what the gospel is all about. And the way you become someone who has that restored relationship with God in some ways couldn't be more simple. In some ways, it's something a five-year-old sometimes understands better than a 50-year-old. Because what it takes to understand who God is in Christ is to turn from yourself and your sin and say, I'm done with any idea of self-righteousness or paying for my sins myself. I can't do that. And you turn to Jesus 
in what's called repentance and you lean all your spiritual weight on him, you depend on him alone for your salvation, for your forgiveness, for the righteousness you desperately need. And by faith, you believe that every time you disobeyed, he obeyed in your place. By faith, you believe that when Jesus died on the cross and you ask for forgiveness based on his sacrifice, you're forgiven completely, entirely, sufficiently, with nothing left to earn, prove, demonstrate, or make yourself worthy of. It's by grace through faith we're saved. That's the answer to all our great sin problems and all our other problems connected to that. Repentance and faith is how we come to this relationship restored in Christ and so we have complete sufficiency Jesus paid it all all to him I owe sin had left a crimson stain he washed it white as snow you can know the love of God the forgiveness of God the adoption God provides where you become one of his children forever by saving faith in Jesus I just want to give you some key verses to understand this well. Listen to this verse on the sufficiency of Christ from the book of Hebrews. But now he, just bask in these biblical truths. This isn't my opinion I'm talking to you about. This is straight from the word of God. Now he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to do away with sin. How? By the sacrifice of himself. Just as man is destined to die once and after that to face the judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people and he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Those of us who've trusted him are waiting for his return to receive the final reward of relationship with him completely restored once and for all as we're conformed to his image. Jesus is all we need. He died so we could live. He lived so we could live. Look at this next verse. And, be, and we're found in him not having a righteousness of my own, Paul says, that comes from the law but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So Jesus didn't just die for you. He lived for you. He obeyed in your place. Jesus couldn't die in the, in the manger for our sins. He had to live a full lifespan, obeying God every step of the way. And he does, perfectly. And so we get to exchange our unrighteousness, our disobedience for his right perfect righteousness and his perfect obedience so you're not just forgiven that's amazing news oh you're forgiven you know that bumper sticker you see sometimes christians aren't perfect just forgiven i don't really love that bumper sticker i know what it's trying to do it's trying to combat is anybody is that still around that, that phrase no i haven't seen yeah i've seen it so it, you're not just forgiven in god's sight if you've trusted jesus oh you're forgiven your sins have been cast away as far as the east is from the west. But you're also declared righteous and holy in his sight when you have union with Christ. His righteousness now, righteousness now is yours. Every time you read the Gospels and you see Jesus tell the truth, think of every time you lied. And his truthfulness replaces your deception. 
Think of every time that you've lusted and claim his purity of thought and behavior every step of the way. Jesus took your place, yes, in his death, but his life. And then look at this next passage. Not just his perfect obedience, but his death once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring us to God. See, that's the key. You don't just get forgiven to get forgiven. You don't just get the righteousness of Jesus to have the righteousness of Jesus. You have those things so you can have an intimate, perfect relationship with God now abundantly and eternally in heaven. So that's why we don't need to fear death. That's why this message we keep seeing in this story is even death isn't our greatest fear. Living a day without God is. That's our greatest fear. And when we realize we have life abundant now and eternal in heaven, we don't even need to fear death. There's nothing we need fear now because Jesus has done everything we need for him to. And so we're united with him how? Like I said, by faith. Listen to this passage in Ephesians 2. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's a gift of God, not by work so that no one can boast. It's all grace. And I want to talk to you about this idea of grace because I realized years ago there's something in me that hates grace. There's something in me that hates grace. I want to deserve it. I want to earn it. I want to be worthy of it. And God comes along and says, you can't. You're not. So give up. Wave the white flag of your own self-sufficiency and your own self-righteousness and trust Jesus because he's all you need. He's sufficient. Give up the striving to prove yourself before me because you can't. And because Jesus has. And everything that's his is yours now. Everything is yours now because we're united with him by faith. And his resurrection is the decisive blow in the battle. Listen to this passage. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism, total identification with Jesus, into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall be certainly united with him in a resurrection like his. So we have resurrected eternal life promised to us in Jesus. We don't even need to fear death. We don't need to fear anything. If you fear God the way we talked about the other day, you don't need to fear anything else. You can boldly approach the throne of grace with confidence, realizing that all we should ever hear from God is depart from me. But because of Jesus, what we hear is, come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. I'll be your Sabbath rest. I'll provide everything you need because that's the way I love. And then we live lives of love because he first loved us. And then our lives are just an overflow of the love we've received from him because he lived, he died, he rose in our place. And that's not all. He is victorious. And so Jesus conquered death. Jesus conquered sin. Jesus conquered hell. He's the one you desperately need. Living for him then is everything to us. 
Listen to what Tim Keller said, who's with Jesus now, just a few months ago. The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. If Jesus conquered death, if Jesus is the only solution to our sin problem, he's boss. He calls the shots. And and now our lives are not judging his teaching, whether we like it or not, but realizing he's the one true king and we conform our lives to him without reservation, without exception. And so we live our lives realizing who he is, continuously depending on him. And here's here's this amazing truth. He takes our place in his life and death. So think about Jesus hanging on a cross, taking your place in his perfect sacrificial death. Just think about that, completely taking your place in this. So my son, Sam, he's a very curious kid. You know, he didn't know any English when he came, like all my kids. And we're not actually sure what language Sam spoke. He was, he was actually found the day he was born, within hours, maybe within an hour of being born, in the rural eastern mountains of Taiwan. We're not even sure what race he exactly is, but he's a beautiful boy. We know that. Very handsome. And, uh, and, and so Sam is very curious. And, he was, and if, you like, if you use a word he doesn't know, he'll always say, what's that mean? He's always very curious. And I remember one time we were watching President Obama. I think he was about eight. And he goes, Daddy, who are those guys behind the president and the sunglasses? And I said, oh, Sammy boy, those are secret service agents. He said, that sounds like the coolest job in the world. Tell me about this. And so I started telling him, and he was really curious, and I love curiosity, and I love to feed curiosity. So I went and got a documentary on Secret Service agents. And we're watching this documentary, and we got to a scene that talks about the assassination attempt on on, um, Ronald Reagan in 1980 outside a Houston hotel. Now, Now, what you need to know about this assassination attempt was a guy named John Hinckley, who actually just got let out of prison. That's kind of strange. Um, John Hinckley decided he was going to kill the president. And so he had a gun, and he's waiting in this crowd outside this Houston hotel. And he pulls his gun as Reagan's about to get into his limousine. He waves, and Hinckley unloads five shots toward the president. When that happens, everybody's diving for cover, right? Everybody's just scrambling, hiding behind cars, hitting the ground, covering up, except for the Secret Service agents. One of them threw Reagan in the car. Look at this picture. This, this is Reagan leaving the, a second, about three seconds before Hinckley takes shots at him. Now, I want you to look at the... No, no, not yet. I want you to look at the guy on the right. See the red-headed guy on the right? That guy's name is Timothy McCarthy. He's a Secret Service agent. See see how locked in he is? About three seconds after this photo, shots start ringing out. One Secret Service agent, that's Timothy McCarthy, the next picture. That's a close-up of him. That's him locked in right before the bullets were shot. And and he he does this, right? And the, the shots start, one Secret Service agent grabs Reagan, dives in the limousine, and light, lays on top of him. Other ones uh, run uh, down the sides of the limousine, they slam the doors, and they run with their guns drawn. Timothy McCarthy does, did, does something that while I'm watching this documentary with my son, I start weeping. 
And I stopped the documentary because I can't even see it. And Sam looks at me and says, Dad, are you all right? We're just watching a documentary, Dad. What's going on here? See if you can figure out why I started to weep. When the shot started, look what Timothy McCarthy does in this next photograph. Everybody's diving for cover. He turns toward the sound of the gunshots. And he makes himself as big as he possibly can. So he takes the hit instead of the president. Right after this scene, it freezes the frame here, and they're interviewing a Secret Service agent, and he says, if you see what those guys did during the Reagan assassination attempt, you realize that what they do, when they do that sort of thing, the Secret Service agent said, it defies every human intuition there is. It, it takes a commitment and a disciplined practice of a willingness to be self-sacrificial so that you die instead of the president, if need be. This is how Timothy McCarthy ended up. Three shots to the chest and the stomach. He survived, amazingly. But that's how he ended up. Now, let's go back to that picture of him turning, guys. Let's not, no, one before that. One, yeah, that one. There you go. Now, when I saw this scene, I started weeping. Anybody know why I started weeping? Why, why was that so moving to me, do you think? That's what Jesus did. <laughs> That's what he did. You know, Jesus is dying on the cross, and in some ways he couldn't look weaker than he is. But it's the strongest thing anybody's ever done. It's the most powerful thing he's ever done. It's the most loving, self-sacrificial thing anybody's ever done. He made himself big. He looks weak. Remember, he's got that scene where he's standing next to Herod, and Herod's asking him questions, and Jesus is freezing him out. And Herod says, you're not going to answer me? Don't you know I could hand you, hand you over to be killed? Remember what Jesus says to him? This is a paraphrase. Homeboy, you got no power. I'm not giving you. He says, you're not in charge. I'm in charge. I'm running this show. I know look, I look like a helpless victim, but I'm running this show. I'm laying down my life for my sheep right now. And even you couldn't stop this if you wanted to. That's what Jesus does. So I explained this to my son. He kind of got it at 8. I think he gets it a far better now at 17. But this was so powerful to me that Jesus took our place in that way, in that powerful, incredible way. And here's the incredible news. When he takes your place on a cross, when he takes your place in his self-sacrificial life in that way and in his perfect righteousness, and you trust him in saving faith, you're forgiven, you're declared righteous, you're adopted into his family. And it doesn't stop there. He continues to be the best friend you could ever have. This is something a lot of us don't understand well. Jesus' ministry didn't stop for us 2,000 years ago when he died on a cross and rose from the dead. He, he was raised from the dead. He ascended, and he's at the right hand of the Father. The Bible says, interceding for you. Look at these verses. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? And then look at this, present tense, present tense. No, no, not, no, no, stay there. No, before that, where we were, yes. Who is to condemn? Jesus Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. 
This doesn't mean there's any lack of sufficiency in what he did for you. It just means he keeps applying it relationally and personally every time you sin, every time you fail in the process of following him faithfully. Living the Christian life never means perfection this side of heaven, but it means progress. It means sinning and going to the feet of Jesus and leaving that sin there at the cross. That's what it means, and Jesus is there for you as your advocate. Listen to Robert Murray McShane. If I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies, yet distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. Jesus is interceding for you. He's your great high priest now and forever. He's there for you all the time. You know, becoming an adoptive father has been a powerful thing in my life. My whole life, I've realized that Christians were adopted. We were orphans, and we've been adopted. And, and as I've become an adoptive father, understanding that has gone so much deeper in my life. I remember we were, we were in the adoption process with our girl, Caroline, and, and I can remember feeling all this fatherly affection for her and this, this protectiveness for her, even though she was in an orphanage on the other side of the world in Taiwan. We were there longing to meet her and bring her home. And I, I had a love for her that I had never experienced before in that sort of depth and a desire to protect her. And that's never ended. She's 23-year-old. She, she got rear-ended yesterday and and an L.A. freeway, and man, I wanted to get on a plane and go home, make sure she was all right. She said she was fine. She is fine. But I wanted to go home. She's my girl, right? But I'll never forget, this, this is our family. I showed you this family photo. Nah, maybe it was a different one. But that's our family. And that's Caroline and Paige and Sam and Isaac. But let, let me just highlight Caroline, our first girl right here, who's on my, your left, my right there. And I, I remember... I, Caroline went on a trip with me one time, and we were staying in a hotel, and I got up early, and I was going to go out and do a little studying, and I walked by her bed, and she's very little. She, she's, as somebody said about her, she's, she's only 95 pounds, but she's got a 300-pound personality, and she does. She's, she's amazing like that. But, but when, when she was, I think she was just nine years old when she was on this trip with me. And she was sound asleep in, in, the, in her bed as I walked by it. And the blanket had fallen off. And she was so tiny. And even though she was asleep, she was cold. I could tell she, she was very cold, even though she was asleep, and obviously that, therefore not sleeping well. And I can remember being concerned about this and picking up the blanket and putting it over her and tucking her in really carefully and quietly and so she would get warm. And, and then I just laid my hands on her, and I prayed for her. I prayed that she would come to know Jesus, and I prayed that God would provide a husband for her someday who loved Jesus. And I prayed for her health and for her dealing with things in her life that she's no doubt going to go through. And I prayed this fatherly prayer for her. And then when I was done, I stood back and I looked at this little girl in this bed that I just covered up. And I had this sense that even though I was way bigger than she is, God views me the way I was just viewing her. Needy. Often not even aware of my needs but there, for me, with me, providing for me. And my fatherly love for my girl is just a little glimpse of the kind of fatherly love God has for us. 
it would kill me if any of you left here at the end of this week without that fatherly love. You know, Russell Moore in his book, Adopted for Life, which is on a theology of adoption, he says in that book that when Adam and Eve rebelled against God, the whole universe became an orphanage. And we all desperately needed God to adopt us into his family because we forfeit that relationship because of our rebellion when we go our own way and say we don't need our father. I would hate for any of you to leave here with your sins unforgiven this week. I would hate for any of you to leave here without the righteousness of Christ freeing you from any religious or moral crushing weight that you can never fulfill. The gospel is Jesus paid it all. He did it for you. And you can live a life so profoundly free and secure and joyful and hopeful in him. I just got word that an incredible, joyful, godly woman in our church named Tracy has been battling cancer, just entered hospice care. We were all hopeful she'd get more years, but it's not looking like she's going to make Christmas. But to see the way Tracy is moving into meeting Jesus face to face, oh, not minimizing the difficulty of it at all, but with joy and hope, confident that she is the daughter of the king. And she looks forward to being with him forever. And so, I I do not want tonight to go by without giving anyone here an opportunity who is not completely confident that you have gotten to the point of your life where you're done with your sin and your self-effort and you want to lean all your weight on Jesus. And with no manipulation, no emotional appeal, no ongoing repeated appeal, I want to give you an opportunity if that is where you are. Here's what I mean. Don't, Don't listen closely. Here's what I mean by this, that you've come to realize you're not confident that you have truly turned from your sin and yourself to Jesus and Jesus alone for your restored relationship with God. If you're not sure of that, you may have had some experience as a kid, you may have been raised in a Christian home, a Christian family, whatever, but, but you're not confident tonight. All that matters is that now, today, you're putting your weight on Jesus. And I, I want to give you an opportunity to do that with no emotional, manipulative appeal, nothing like that. And, and here's the thing. I'm going to ask you in, in a few seconds to stand up if that's what you want to commit to so I can pray for you. That's the reason. I want to pray for you. And here's what I want to say to you. The reason I want you, it's between you and the Lord for sure. But as we've been seeing, the Christian life is incredibly personal, but it's not private. It's personal, but it's not private. And you will, if you stand tonight to declare that I want to trust Jesus, for saving faith tonight. If you stand to declare that, this will probably be the most friendly crowd you could ever do that in front of. And you're going to be called to a life of taking that stand in an increasingly hostile culture. If you can't do it here, where can you do it? And so, if you want to trust Jesus so I can pray for you tonight and be sure of that, would you just stand right now?
Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, I'm grateful for your work. You are a God who seeks and saves the lost. And Lord, you, you haven't quit doing that. You did that in the Great Awakening in this very land centuries ago. You did it in the Second Great Awakening. And you birthed leaders from this very region to be leaders in the revival you've brought about in the past. And Lord, this land is desperate for people devoted to you who are willing to take a stand and preach Christ to a world that desperately needs him. And I thank you for these precious young lives, these young men and women who want to have a relationship with you and Jesus and be sure of that tonight. So Lord, I pray your great blessing on them. I pray that they would know that they've become part of your family through this saving faith in Jesus and they've also become part of an army. And Lord, I pray that you would equip them, that they daily put on the full armor of God. They lean into relationships that will encourage them in their faith. That they'll be ready for the challenges that come their way. And that you would use them in powerful ways, not just to walk closely with you, but to be ministers of the gospel. Lord, get them in your word. Get them in fellowship. Lord, I pray the Spirit would be taking over territory in their hearts, and you'd be equipping them more and more each day to make a difference for Christ and his kingdom. Lord, thank you for these dear ones. I commit them to you, confident in the Spirit's work and the power of the gospel. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.